Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the Scripture tonight. So let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible, know that there's some provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that there's some on the table in the foyer. We'd love to gift you with one uh, as, you, as you depart tonight. But Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at this story that our friend Austin read for us a moment ago. A wonderful story. It's one of the most popular stories Jesus ever told. Second probably to the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan comes this story in terms of who all's familiar with it, who all's heard bits and pieces of it, not just inside the church but outside the church. It is a powerfully rich story and one of the unique things about this story that Jesus tells is that it's basically the Bible in a nutshell. The storyline of scripture can be traced from verse 11 all the way down to verse 32. If we understand that the storyline of the scripture kind of falls along these four pillars of creation, of fall, of redemption, and of recreation, you'll find those same movements, those same pillars present in this incredibly densely packed story that Jesus tells. Where there's creation kind of at the beginning where, the, where father's rolling with his two sons. But then there's a fall that happens that affects everyone. And then there's redemption that happens as the younger son returns, but then the story ends with a type of recreation where there's a feast being had, and, and you get a picture of what's going down at the end of the Bible when all is said and done, and, and those who have been reconciled to God by grace through faith in Jesus will sit down and feast with him for all eternity. You have the whole story of the Bible outlined in this powerful, powerful parable. Now, the reason why I want to step into this story tonight, I believe that the Lord would have us move in this direction, is kind of following on the hills of last week's series. Last week, we brought our series titled Origins to a Close. We took a few months to walk through the first three chapters of the Bible, and we looked at creation, and then we looked at the fall. And then you know when you come to the end of Genesis chapter 3, things end on a sour note. Things aren't good in that moment. Adam and Eve are actually exiled. They are alienated from God. They are alienated from one another. They are alienated from their environment, and they are exiled from Eden. They are no longer in the home that God created them for. And so the rest of the Bible would unfold along the story of how are sinners to return home? How is God going to work in the world to bring those who are exiled from Eden back into his presence so that people like you and I might enjoy him and thrive with him once again? Well, this story shows us the answer to that question. This story illustrates the way home for people like you and me. It's a powerful story, and if you're familiar with it, and if you look at the beginning of verse 11, perhaps at the top of that passage in your Bibles, there's a title given to this story, a title that's known as the parable of the prodigal son, which is a misleading Title. It's a misleading descriptor because you know right off the bat in verse 11 that there's more than one son, right? You're told in verse 11, and he, referring to Jesus, said there was a man, there was a father who had two sons. He had two boys. And what you're going to see described as the story unfolds is that both of these sons, though they are completely different from one another, they are both lost. They are both homeless. They are both exiled from the heart of their father. They do not know the goodness and the grace and the love of their dad. And so they're both alienated from what the father would want for them. But you're going to see how 
how although they are both alienated, there's one way back for both of them. There's one way back for both of them. And these two sons that you're going to see in the story couldn't be any different from each other. They're members of the same family at the beginning of this story, but you know if you have siblings, that siblings can be completely different from each other. In this story, you have a younger son and an older son. And as you read about what their lives are like in the parable, you begin to see how they can be described and contrasted with one another in some pretty significant ways. You might describe the younger son as an unrighteous person. And you might describe the older son as uh, a seemingly righteous person. But what you're going to discover is that his righteousness is a self-righteousness, which puts him in a really, really bad spot. So you have an unrighteous younger son, then you have a self-righteous older son. And it's really interesting that these two sons would, would be described in the ways that they are in the story because, don't look at the table just yet, that's a little premature. The reason for that is if you look back up at verse 1 in chapter 15, look back up at verse 1. Jesus is queuing in to his audience. The people who are listening to him tell this story, they are to hear the story in a way that they see their reflection in one of these two sons, in one of these two boys. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners, that, those, that's the group that's classified as unrighteous people. Tax collectors and sinners, they are present with Jesus. And the way Jesus tells the story, they are to see themselves in, uh, depicted in the story of the younger son. But there's another group there when you keep reading in verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes were present there as well. The religious leaders, and they were grumbling, saying, This man, referring to Jesus, receives sinners and he eats with them. How can a holy person dine with sinners and tax collectors? The Pharisees and the scribes couldn't get it. It angered them. It aroused their frustration with Jesus that he would receive folks like these at his table. So you have sinners and tax collectors on one hand, and you have Pharisees and scribes on the other. You have unreligious and religious, both of whom are targeted in Jesus' parable. Because what Jesus wants to impress upon his audience is that both the unrighteous and the self-righteous are lost. Both of them are trying to deal with life in a fallen world, but they're going about it in two different ways. But what you're also going to see is that the remedy for both the unrighteous and the remedy for the self-righteous is the same. And that that remedy can be found in one word we call repentance. And I'll show you that here in a moment as well. But as Jesus is telling this story, he intends for his audience to identify with one of the two sons. And I suspect that this is his intention for us tonight. As we look at this story, that you would identify, see yourself reflected in uh, one of these two sons. So to help you kind of do that, I put a table up a moment ago that contrasts these two brothers, that contrasts these two types, these two profiles. And, and I think if we kind of look closely, we're going to hear something about ourselves in how these two boys contrast with each other. You have younger brother types in this room and you have older brother types in this room. 
You have younger brother types whom are described as irreligious. They, perhaps some of you, this is the first time you've stepped into a church building like this in years. You, you, you've been afraid of these types of places because you have an irreligious bent to you. Anything formalized, anything considered to be religious as a religious ex expression is something that doesn't bode well with you. So you've avoided it all your life at all costs. You consider yourself to be an irreligious person. But then the older brother might be described as religious. You'll see him serving in his father's household in some dedicated and devoted ways. The younger brother types might be described as progressive. They're forward thinking. Older brother types may be described as more conservative, more traditional in their bent and in their profile and their personality. So you've got a progressive side here and a conservative side here. You've got red state, blue state all rolled into this story. And Jesus is putting both of them in his crosshairs. You know, salvation, redemption, reconciliation has nothing to do with your political party affiliation. It has nothing to do with what state you were raised in. They're both targeted in this story. You have nonconformists in the younger brother types, but then you have conformists in the, old, in the older brother. You're going to see a rule breaker in the younger brother. You're going to see a rule follower in the older brother. You're going to see someone who's kind of laid back and goes with the flow in the younger brother, but you're going to see someone who's kind of uptight. He's wound a little too tight in the story. You'll see that when his anger comes out towards the end. The younger brother perhaps works when he's inspired, when he feels like it, while the older brother works all the time. The younger brother wears his sin on the outside. He posts it on Facebook and Instagram. He broadcasts his sin to the world with no shame, no conviction. He, he's just going for it full throttle, 24-7, keeping it 100. The older brother, on the other hand, he, he's covering his sin up. He's just as lost as the younger brother. He, there's sin that characterizes his heart, but he's doing a really good job of hiding it. The younger brother uses people, whereas the older brother condemns people. Younger brother types are fickle. They don't carry through with their commitments. They kind of bounce around. They, they don't stick with anything significant. Older brother types are more forceful and domineering in their whole approach to commitment. Younger brother types, again, are unrighteous. Older brother types are self-righteous. These are the two profiles you're going to see illustrated in this story. And I believe as we look at them, you're going to see yourself reflected in one of these two sons. Now, the tricky thing about this is that I've discovered over the course of my journey with Jesus that at different seasons, I tend to identify with one of these two sons uh, differently in different seasons of my life. There are some seasons when, I, when I'm a younger brother type. There are other seasons when I'm an older brother type. But it doesn't really matter who you're identifying with in this moment. The remedy for me and the remedy for you stays the same. It is repentance in response to the ridiculous love of our Heavenly Father. This is what we're going to see in the story. Let's jump in, looking first at the younger son. The younger son may be described as going about life in this world with reckless self-indulgence. Check it out, verse 12. And the younger of the two sons come to his father and he says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, at first glance, that might seem like a not a big deal type of request. But understand that with this request, the younger son is heaping shame upon his father's reputation. In asking for his inheritance in this moment, the younger son is saying, Father, I want to live my life as if you were dead. I'm not really, I don't really want to run with you closely anymore. I don't want to live under your roof. I want my share of the inheritance now so I can go my own way. Reckless self-indulgence is, is driving this younger son to offend his father in, a, in an egregious kind of way. 
He's essentially saying to his dad, I want to live my life as though you are dead. I want to dismiss your existence and do my own thing. This is his approach. This is what he's asking for. He's essentially spitting in his father's face and flipping him the bird in making this request. I wonder if the parents in the room, if you're, how your heart would respond if one of your children ever came up to you and said, Hey, mom, hey, dad. I want to live my life as if, you don't want, as if you don't exist anymore. I want to go my own way. I don't really want to be in close relationship with you. I'm not really concerned with your love for me. And I'm not really all that interested in loving you. I just want to go and do my thing. I wonder how your heart would respond if your child ever made this type of request. It's an offensive ask that the younger son is making. And in making this request, that we are being cued into the, the nature of sin in our lives and the nature of sin in the world. You know, sometimes when we think about sin and we are asked perhaps, hey, what do you mean by sin? What do you refer to? How do you define sin? We, we sometimes give a definition that is true but insufficient. A definition that may be right, but it just doesn't go far enough in our understanding of what sin is. For example, Somebody asks you, hey, can you tell me what sin is? You might say, well, sin is breaking God's commandment. And that's true, right? Sin is breaking God's commandments. But although it is right, although that is true, it doesn't quite go far enough. It doesn't get after the essence of sin or the egregious relational effect that sin is. And so it's not sufficient for us to say that sin is breaking God's commandments. And I think Jesus is cueing us into this with this parable. Sin is more than that. Sin is actually betraying the love of our Father. Sin is betrayal. Sin offends the Father by betraying his love. It's not just breaking his commandments. This is why when you come to the end of the story, the older brother can boast, hey, I've done everything you've told me to do. But do you hear in the older brother a heart that actually loves his father? No, you see an entitled person who says, I've been obedient, I've done, I've followed your rules, I haven't broken your commands technically, but what has he done? He's betrayed his father's heart by not understanding the grace and the love that the father has for both of his two boys. And so we're cued into something about the nature of sin with this request. It's more than breaking commands, it's betraying love. Now, as Jesus is describing this, as he's telling his audience that the younger son has made this request, everybody listening to him were, was expecting him to then turn the corner and describe a moment when the father just unleashes fists of fury upon his boy. That the father would then just drive the son out of the house, uh, pummeling him, so to speak, because he's just heaped shame upon the father's reputation and upon the reputation of the household. That's what everybody in his audience was expecting him to do. Why? Because the book of Leviticus actually authorizes a ceremony that says if, if a child ever wants to break with the family and commit this type of act, then everybody in the community can come together and they, they can go through this ceremony where they take a clay pot and they shout the boy's name and they throw the pot on the ground, breaking it before his feet. It's called the ceremony of cutting off. And in that moment, they are, they are all deciding as a family and as a community to cut this boy off entirely forever. And there's no coming back from it once that ceremony is executed. You were driven out. You're not given your share of the inheritance. You're not given what you wanted. You're just put out by the family and by the community. That was the story that everybody in Jesus' audience most likely expected to hear. But what does Jesus say next? 
As shocking as the younger son's request was, Jesus's, uh, the father's response to the younger son is even more shocking. It's even more radical. It's even more surprising. Look at what he says. Verse 12. And the younger son said to the father, give me my share of the share of property that is coming to me. And then it says just simply and nondescriptly that the father divided his property between them. He said, "Okay, here you go. He just gives the son what he wants. Now, let me ask you a question. It's a heavy question, but it's one I want you to think about. What what image comes into your mind when you think about something as weighty and as even uncomfortable of a concept as the wrath of God. When you hear a phrase like the wrath of God, what image comes into your mind? Now, when I was a kid, every time I heard that phrase, I would start shaking. I would get frightened. I would get scared, you know, because in my mind, the wrath of God always had kind of fists of fury behind it. I always thought Bruce Lee. I always thought God and his wrath would just pummel sinners with fists of fury that, that anytime something bad happens in the universe, anybody, anytime somebody's getting pummeled, pummeled, whether it's through an earthquake or whether it's through a tornado, whether it's through war, whatever the case may be, that, that was my understanding of God's wrath in every one of those instances. But I want to show you an image of God's wrath that might surprise you. An understanding of God's wrath that kind of harmonizes with what Jesus is describing in the father's response to the younger son. And what I believe is the ordinary and regular way that God's wrath is revealed in real time, present day experience all throughout the world. I'll show it to you in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is talking about God's wrath. But he talks about God's wrath Yes, in present tense, as a present time reality, but the way he describes God's wrath may may surprise us. And if we're not careful, it will catch us off guard. Look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, those who are dismissing God like the younger son is doing says the wrath of God is revealed right now from heaven against all of that. But what form is his wrath taking? Drop down to verse 24. You drop, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 24. The form that his wrath is taking in real time. It says, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Drop down to verse 26 for this reason. Here it is again. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Drop down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The present tense, real-time, ordinary way that God's wrath seems to be manifesting itself in the world today doesn't take the form of fists of fury. It takes the form of a gentle nudge. It is God's willingness to say, you want to live your life as though I do not exist. You want to go your own way, pursue your own thing. God's wrath says, okay, go ahead. Isn't that what's being illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son? Give me my share of the inheritance. I want to do my own thing. And what does the father say? Here you go. He gave the younger son up to his desires. He gave the younger son up to his request. But what you're going to find in this story is that God's wrath is never uh, 
entirely detached in this world from his grace. And there's a sense in which when God hands a person over to his desires, there is grace even in that act. Because what you're going to find in the story of the younger son is the younger son goes his own way. And what happens? Everything falls apart. His life hits rock bottom. And it says in verse 17 that he came to his senses God's grace manifesting through the wrath that he shows the son, so to speak, as the father's handing him over to that which would ultimately bring him to his senses. So you might think about God's wrath this way. If, if you or anyone else insist on ignoring your conscience and living your life as if God doesn't exist, he'll let you. C.S. Lewis would put it this way. He said, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom, in the end, God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, that is the final fists of fury form of God's wrath. All those who are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. You hear the storyline of the scriptures being unfolded in this story where the father's giving the young, younger son what he wanted giving him his share of the inheritance. You want to live as though I don't exist? Go ahead. We'll see how that goes for you. Then you look at verse 14. Look at what um, verse 13. It says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So he got as far away from his father as he could possibly go. And there he squandered his property in reckless living, reckless self-indulgence. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Do you understand that what's being described there is hell on earth for a young Jewish man? To be feasting with pigs? He's in hell. He's as far from his God, and, or he's as far from his father and his family as he possibly could be. Not only is he in the far country, he's dining with pigs. He's hit rock bottom. That which he thought he wanted, that which he thought he could have in the far country, has forsaken him. And the question becomes, well, if everything you were seeking in this world has forsaken you, will your father also forsake you? Are you done? Is your father going to be done with you? And that's kind of the tension that is being raised in the text as you follow the story. So in verses 14 through 16, you witness a downward spiral where this young boy goes from being a, his father's son to a stranger's slave. And it didn't take long, just a few days. He took everything that he had and he squandered it in reckless living. He made it rain in Vegas, so to speak. He was full tilt, full throttle, indulging himself, seeking some semblance of happiness in the far country, going after life apart from his father. And what you begin to see described there is that the human strives, this thing called the human struggle for happiness. You know, it's one of the bedrock questions that every human heart asks and wrestles with over the course of their lifetime. Is, is, is it really possible for a human being to find happiness apart from God? Is it really possible for someone to be happy without God? And it's an important question, but it's also a tricky question because we don't want to answer it simplistically and say, uh, no, it's no, never possible for somebody to be happy apart from God because that wouldn't be true, Right. It is possible for a person to find some semblance of happiness apart from God. The question is, is that semblance of happiness ultimate? 
will that happiness last? And here in the younger son's example, you find that it will not last. That as he goes to the far country in search of some form of happiness, he winds up being a slave and living in a pig pen. It's a downward spiral. You know, one of the most frustrating things for me when I talk to people about Christianity, and sometimes even when I, when I listen to, to Bible teaching and the way people talk about sin, guys like me will sometimes give the impression that sin isn't desirable. They will give the impression that sin isn't something that a person can actually enjoy. But everyone who sins knows that that's not true. You know, we, we sin because we enjoy it. We, we sin because there's pleasure to be found in sin. But the challenge is the type of pleasure that sin brings into a person's life, what Hebrews chapter 11 would describe is a fleeting pleasure. Yes, in an immediate instance, you can find happiness apart from God in your sin. You can find it. But what you need to realize is that the happiness sin is bringing to you in a moment is a fleeting happiness. It's there for an instant, but it will go away. It's a fleeting pleasure. And the problem with a fleeting pleasure is that a fleeting pleasure is always an enslaving pleasure. For example, if there's a, something that brings you happiness and it's considered something that God that doesn't honor God or, or help others flourish in life, in this world... If you find pleasure there and it goes away, you're going to want more of it, right? So you're going to keep going after it. You're going to keep going, looking for more of it. I'll put it this way. No addict, the first installment of drug addiction is rarely ever meth, right? That's not really where people start. You start with a fleeting pleasure that comes through some other form. You, come, you start with a sense of transcendence that something lighter, something less deadly and harmful can bring to you. But once that pleasure goes away and it, you find it to be fleeting, you, you look for more and more and more and more. And eventually, you find yourself enslaved by the fleeting pleasure that one drug has given you. Same thing goes with pornography and any other type of sexual addiction or sexual struggles, you know, th those types of struggles, they don't just start full throttle in a person's life. They start with letting a glance linger a little too longly on the figure of a male or a female or whatever the case may be. You let your glance linger a little too long, and then all of a sudden you want to explore that a little further. So you start looking towards other images that might not move. You'll look at magazines and pictures, something that you can look at a little longer and, and nobody notice. And then you move from that to where? You move from that to the computer, and you start looking at videos that, that depict images and, and that arouse your lusts, and you begin to feast your eyes on them. And all the while, the more and more you go back to that, the more and more fleeting uh, certain pleasures used to be, and you, have to, you need a, an intenser expression of something. And before long, you may even graduate to a, a type of voyeurism or promiscuity, even prostitution. You'll start exploring with those types of things. What is happening? What is happening is the downward spiral of sin. It is a fleeting pleasure becoming an enslaving pleasure. You are looking for happiness. You are looking for freedom from God, but you find yourself a slave to something else. One of the biggest lies that exists in a fallen world is that freedom is something that actually exists. Freedom in a fallen world is an illusion. It does not exist. Every person on the planet is a slave to some master. The question is, who is your master? Who is your Lord? Who is the source of your happiness? 
Who is the source of your pleasure that is lasting and not fleeting? Here in the story, we're seeing the picture of a younger son who's giving himself to reckless self-indulgence. And he's gone to the far country in search for this happiness, in search for a freedom that ultimately doesn't exist. And he's creating hell for himself. He hits rock bottom, dining with pigs in verse 16. It's kind of like what Eminem, the rapper, said, the, the, the musical rapper, not the candy rapper, when, when Eminem said, you know, you have to be careful what you wish for in this world. I always wished for what I have now, but it has become more of a nightmare than a dream. Is it possible that reckless self-indulgence, people are chasing dreams that turn out to be nightmares in the end? Is that the manifestation of God's wrath in the world? Is that the manifestation of God's wrath in our lives? And are we approaching life in a recklessly self-indulgent kind of way, seeking a freedom that doesn't exist, only to find ourselves enslaved to inferior masters? But notice in verse 17, something changes. Again, God's, rate, God's grace in this world in present time, God's grace is never far removed from his wrath. See, even in this instance, you have the boy hitting rock bottom in verse 16. But then in verse 17, something begins to wake in him. He, he comes to himself. He realizes he's not where he's supposed to be. And there's a lingering memory of what his father was like and what life was like back home. There was something lingering within him that caused him to come to his senses. And he says, you know, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. You know, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to my father. And when I get there, I'm going to say this. And here in verse 18, you have the theme of repentance being introduced. As the son is thinking, okay, if I'm going to return home and if my father's going to receive me, then I better, I, better, I better tell him something specific. And so he writes this prayer out. He says, when I get to my dad, I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And the language behind that prayer suggests that with every step that the young boy is taking back home, he's rehearsing this prayer. He's getting it down. He's thinking, if I'm going to repent, I better nail my repentance. Maybe he's in a little insecure thinking that if he doesn't repent perfectly, his father won't love him or accept him or take him in. Maybe he's thinking that if he doesn't say the right thing to his dad, his dad might not accept him back. And so, so he's rehearsing this prayer of repentance over and over and over again as he walks back home. And it's a wonderful prayer of repentance. Understand, he's not blame shifting, is he? He's not blaming the far country for his enslavement. He's not blaming any person, place, or thing in the world for his situation. He's not blaming his culture. He's not blaming his society. He's not blaming his upbringing. He's not blaming this person, that person, or those people. He's blaming no one but himself. This is where repentance begins, right? Repentance begins when you and I take responsibility for the lives that we're living in this world. We take ownership of our relationship with our God and we own it. We accept responsibility for it. And notice the direction of his repentance. Not only is he not blame shifting, he's, he's, taking, he's understanding who he's ultimately sinned against. He's saying, look, you know, I know I dismissed my dad. I was just going to do my own thing. I didn't mean any harm against him. No, he sees the connection between the life he's chosen and the offense that it is to his father. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. He understands that sin is always relational. 
You might think that in your reckless self-indulgence, you were pursuing a life, dismissing God, and perhaps God wasn't even on the horizon of your life. You weren't even thinking about God. You didn't even believe God exists. But even then, understand, every sin is ultimately against the God who created you in his image, the God who loves you and longs for you to come back home. Every sin is against God. This younger son is, is realizing that. And so he's, he's writing out this prayer of repentance. And it is a, a wonderfully instructive prayer for us. But then look what goes down in verse 20. It says, he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Don't you love that? The younger son is coming home thinking, okay, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this. How's my dad going to respond to me? And the moment his father sees him in the distance, he jumps off the front porch and he sprints in his younger son's direction. It's a remarkable moment because Jewish men in the first century, they, they didn't run, right? They, 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 only, they, they may run for sport on occasion, but, but you didn't typically run like this. It was considered to be undignified for a patriarch of a family like this father to run out, especially if he's running towards a son who's heaped shame upon his reputation, a son who's asked for his share of the inheritance, who's gone his own way, and yet the father is still running in his direction. It's outlandish. It's ridiculous. It's, it's the type of illustration that would have caused every Pharisee and scribe in Jesus' audience to be offended, to be appalled, to think, are you kidding me? Jewish men don't behave like that. You see, for a Jewish man to run, they would have had to take in the robes that they would wear on a daily basis and can't really run in a long flowing robe. And so you would have to tie it up and wrap it up around your legs, exposing your knees. And, and you know, that would cause people to blush in the first century. You don't expose your knee, especially if you're a patriarch, a man. But this is what the father's doing. Because in that moment, his heart is so gripped with compassion for his lost boy that he chunks protocol out the window. He's not confined by cultural norms and conditions. He says, look, I'm going after my boy. And he jumps off the porch and he runs in his son's direction. It's incredible love. And when he gets to his son, what does he do? He embraces him and kisses him. The language there suggests he covered him in kisses. It's a wonderful thing when a dad kisses his son's. And you get a picture of that right here, the father kissing his sons. And then in verse 21, the son begins to execute his prayer. All right, I've prepared for this. I've practiced my prayer, so I'm going to execute it. I'm going to deliver it. I'm going to get it out. Verse 21, the son says to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And just before he turns the corner to say, look, would you just treat me as one of your hired servants? The father interrupts him. The father doesn't let him complete his prayer. The father refuses to let the son think of himself as anything less than a son in this moment. So he doesn't even let him finish his prayer of repentance. He doesn't let him complete what he came to say because ultimately he's not after words. He's after heart. He's after repentance that says, I want to be with my dad again. And this is what the father wants to assure the son of. Verse 22, but the father then said to everyone around him, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father threw a party. 
giving him a robe, giving him a ring, giving him shoes. Each one of those items spoke to the son's familial identity. This was no servant in the household. This was a son of the father. And the father would refuse to allow him to think of him less than he is, even though he's just squandered so much in the far country. He's lavishing his son with grace. He's lavishing his son with love. He's throwing a party. You see, it is this kind of love that the father has for his children that makes repentance easy. Some of you think repentance is hard. And if you think repentance is hard, you're not thinking rightly about the love that the Father has for you. His love makes repentance easy. This is why Romans chapter 2, verse 14, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the goodness of the Father that draws us back to himself so that we might say, God, I've sinned against you and not be afraid of condemnation being the reply of God to us. No, every time a sinner repents, condemnation isn't thrown down. Celebration starts. This is the whole point of Luke 15 and the two stories that Jesus tells right before this. He tells stories about something lost being found, about repentance happening in some discernible way. And and when that happens, a party is thrown. Everybody celebrates. So this goes down at the end of that moment. Verse 24, the father throws a party for his son because his son has returned. His love makes repentance easy. Some of you are afraid to repent for no good reason. You have no good reason not to repent. You have no good reason to not come clean with your sin, to confess it to God, to repent of you. You have no good reason not to. God's love makes it easy. His grace makes sinners glad. He throws a party here in verse 24, but there's another son in the story. And he's been off the pages up until verse 25, and this is where he is introduced. As this this party begins to to be ignited, you begin to see something about the older son. And again, he's completely different from the younger son. If the younger son engaged in reckless self-indulgence, seeking a freedom that doesn't exist, this older son is characterized by religious self-entitlement. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Music and dancing always makes religious people mad. (laughs) Older brother types hate fun, right? They hate parties. Grace doesn't make them glad. It makes them mad. This is the older son here. My, My grandfather actually attended church when he was a teenager, but he also liked to dance. And when one of the older folks in the church learned that he liked to dance, they, they, they got on to him. They rebuked him. And my grandfather left the church and never went back. An older brother type crashing down on my, my grandfather. And he never wanted to come back because they didn't like music and dancing. He kept dancing. He kept reading his Bible, too. It was great. Then verse 26. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things Meant, why is this party being thrown? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But notice the son's response in verse 28. But he was angry. He got mad. He refused to go in. Why was he mad? Why was he so angry? 
Well, it's because this younger son was being treated so well by the father, even though the younger son has just wasted so much of his life in the far country. This younger son has taken everything that the father had given him and squandered it, and he's back now, and the father's going to treat him so well. This older son, this religiously self-entitled person, could not stand the grace and the love that was being shown to the younger brother, the younger son. You see, reckless, self-indulgent people go to a far country in search of a freedom that doesn't exist. Religious, self-entitled people stay close to home in search of a favor that can't be earned. This is essentially the story of the older brother. He stayed close to home. He didn't go to the far country. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't break any of the commandments. But why did he do it? This is his heart being exposed in this moment. He's angry. Why? Because he believed he was entitled to being treated better than he was by his father based on the things that he did in service to the father. Look at verse 29. But he answered his father after the father came out to to get him to come in. He wanted him to be a part of the party and to celebrate grace in that moment. And he says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your commandments. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You see his heart being disclosed in that moment. The older brother didn't want to celebrate and feast with his father. He wanted to celebrate and feast with his friends. Essentially, he wanted the same thing the younger son wanted. He just went about it a different way. What did the younger son want? He wanted to do his own thing apart from the father. What did the older brother want? Ultimately, he wanted to do his own thing with his friends apart from the father. The same desire, but approached in two completely different ways. The younger son said, I'm going to do this by dismissing my dad. The older son said, I'm going to do this by impressing my dad. I'm going to stay close to home. I'm going to do the right things. And I know that if I do all this, my father will treat me right. And so when he saw someone less deserving than himself being treated so well, it, got him, it made him mad. He got angry. Religious self-entitlement. He was, seeking, he was staying close to home in search of a favor that he could not ultimately earn, own. You know, it's possible to stay close to the things of God while remaining a stranger to the heart of God. There are many people in churches today who are very close to the things of God. But they are estranged to the heart of God. They don't understand grace. They don't understand love. They don't understand God treating all people better than they deserve. They they don't get this idea that grace means reconciliation, redemption, salvation comes free of charge to those who are repentant, to those who are wanting to return home. They, They don't get that, so they get angry about it. It is possible to be close to the things of God while remaining a stranger to the heart of God. I wonder if this is why some of you are very, very religious. I wonder if this is why some of you do the things that you do. You're doing all that you do, not because you love God and you believe He really loves you. You're doing all that you're doing because you want to impress him. You want him to take you in. You want him to show you favor, not realizing that favor isn't something to be earned. The way home, the way back to our God, the way to enjoy God once again doesn't happen through any type of repayment. The way back to God and enjoying his love and his grace and his mercy happens not through repayment, but through repentance. This is what the older son needed to learn. This is the point of the parable ultimately, that both of these two sons were alienated from the heart of their father, and the way back home was repentance. But repentance wasn't something the older son believed he needed to do. It wasn't something he needed. That's what self-righteousness means, right? 
A person who is self-righteous does not need to repent. A person who is self-righteous has nothing to confess that's wrong with them or wrong about their relationship with God. A person who is self-righteous needs no grace. But I assure you, the way this story is told, it is told so that every type of person will see their need for grace. What's interesting is that the parable ends in verse 31 with the son, the older son. He's kind of, we're left with some tension. The party is going on. The son is refusing to come in. He's not responding appropriately to the moment. And so we're kind of left with some tension there, wondering, well, what's going to go down with the Pharisee or the older son? And, and that tension there is strategic because, again, Jesus is targeting not only the tax collectors and sinners, assuring them that grace is available to them. He's targeting the Pharisees and the scribes, assuring them that they, too, needed to change their heart. They, too, needed a heart change. They, too, needed to repent. And so you end verse 32 with tension, wondering, well, how well, did what came of the older son? And we don't know, because ultimately the point isn't what went down with him. The point is what goes down with you as you read this story. If you see yourself identifying with the older brother, if you see those tendencies within you, are you going to repent just as the younger son did in his illustration in the story? So here you have... Two sons, completely different. The parable of the prodigal sons, both are alienated, both need to return home, and the way back is the same for both. But there's something peculiar about this story, especially when you read it in light of everything that's preceded it. And I want to just kind of put this thought before you, is that there's another son in the story. There's two sons that are being talked about, but there's a third son, and he's actually the one who's telling the story. And here's what I mean by that. When you look back in verses 3 through 7, Jesus tells a story about a man who loses a sheep. And this man goes looking for the sheep to bring the sheep back home. Then he goes into another story about a woman who loses a coin. And the whole story is about this woman looking for the lost coin, wanting to get the coin back. But then you come to this third parable about, a lost, about lost sons. And it begs the question because nobody is described here as going and searching for the lost one. Where's the seeker? Where's the one who is going after that which is lost in this story? There's been a seeker in all the previous stories. Where is he at in this one? Now, one of the interesting things about the first century culture in the Jewish world is that if, if there was an instance where a son or a younger sibling kind of brought shame upon the family and tried to bail on the family and there was tension there, the responsibility would fall upon the older son to go and to make things right. So the one that was supposed to go looking for the younger son in the far country was the older brother. But the older brother didn't go looking for the younger son. He stayed close to home thinking, well, maybe I'll just get more now that he's out of here. And so the one who is supposed to be the seeker in the story isn't seeking. Why? Because he's not good. But the one who's telling the story is. The one who is telling the story is very, very good. The one who's telling the story is the eternal son. The eternal son who isn't characterized by reckless self-indulgence. He isn't characterized by religious self-entitlement. This eternal son who's characterized by redemptive self-sacrifice. We read elsewhere in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, 
He sent his only son into the world so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The point of this parable raises the tension of who's doing the seeking and the one who is seeking is actually speaking. The one who is seeking is the one telling the story. Jesus is the one God sent into the world looking for those who were lost. Whether a person is lost in their self-indulgence or they are lost in their self-righteousness, Jesus came looking for both types of people. And that is good news for a room such as this. Whether you are self-righteous or self-indulgent, the Savior is seeking after you. The Father sent him into the world to do for us what the older brother did not do for his younger brother in this story. Although he had a sacred responsibility to reconcile his family, he didn't do it. But Jesus does. Don't you love the fact that God didn't depend upon a Pharisee to make things right? Don't you love the fact that God did not depend upon a, a religious human being to make things right? No, God sent his son. God himself entered the world to seek and to save that which is lost, to go after that who, those who are, who are wasting their lives in self-indulgence, those who are wasting their lives in self-entitlement. He's saying, I've sent Jesus to come and get you. And so when you talk about repentance being made easy, understand that repentance, if you don't repent towards Jesus, you're going to repent towards one of the other two identities. Meaning, if you are a self-indulgent person and if you want to make things right and repentance happens but you don't go to Jesus, you're going to go where? You're going to go to religious self-entitlement. You're going to go to morality. You're going to get very religious. You're going to become hard-hearted, maybe even embittered towards other younger brothers who, used to be, who you used to be just like. Or if you are a religiously self-entitled person and you repent apart from Jesus and you try to make some changes, become more loving, more compassionate, more gracious towards your fellow human beings, you're, you're going to perhaps move from religious self-entitlement to reckless self-indulgence. You're going to think, well, I tried religion. It didn't work. I'm going to go that way. Or you're going to say, well, I tried my way. It, it kind of left me in this bad spot, so I'm going to try to get religious. If you repent without Jesus, you're oscillating between two undesirable identities. Repentance, where we acknowledge who we are before our God and we see how he sent his son to claim us. Repentance must fixate on the person and the work of Jesus, the true older brother. Only Jesus can keep you from becoming a self-entitled religious person. And only Jesus can keep you from becoming a self-indulgent, reckless person. So as you're repenting, Understand that you're repenting towards the eternal son, the one who's characterized by redeeming self-sacrifice, the one who ultimately is his brother's keeper. This is our Jesus. This is our Savior. This is the one that we're turning towards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning, evening, and I just ask that your grace would abound as we consider and to process this story I ask that your Holy Spirit would be our counselor, our teacher, our instructor, so that as we're looking into this story, would you help us to see ourselves in it? And would you please give us grace to run to Jesus as a result of it? God, I pray that we would be repentant people, but I pray that we would repent towards Jesus. I pray that we would respond to the way that you have come for us in sending your Son the one who lived and died and rose again. We thank you, Jesus, for clothing us in righteousness. We thank you, Jesus, for dressing us up with a new identity. We thank you, Jesus, for reconciling us back into the family of God. 
And we thank you, Jesus, for the future that awaits us where we will one day feast with you for all eternity. God, we love you and we pray that your grace would abound as we respond to you over these next few moments in Jesus' name. Amen.